Hi, I'm Andrew. And I'm Spencer. And we're here at the Slowdown's New York headquarters. You're listening to Time Sensitive, a podcast where we profile curious and courageous people in business, the arts, and beyond who have a distinct perspective on time. Andrew, this week on the podcast, you have Jesse Cam, uh, LA-based fashion designer, probably most known or anyway for her epic cam pants. Yeah, women love uh, Jesse Cam's slacks, the cam <laughs> pants. Um, she's amazing. I've been wanting to have Jesse on for a long time because she, out of everyone I know, has the most enviable approach to her work-life balance. She really has from the beginning, explored how she's going to find vitality in her life and and sort of create balance between working and Mm. living. Mostly she's just trying to get back in the ocean to surf. Yeah, I mean, when she came in the office, it was like sun-kissed, radiant vibes. Yeah, she just got back from Panama where she spends a good part of her year. Mm. Um, And we talk about that uh, and a lot of other ways that she sort of views time and, and how she values it. So I'm excited about this one. Yeah, good energy. Let's get into it. Here's Andrew and Jesse Cam. Today in the studio, I'll be speaking with the fashion designer, Jesse Cam, who's been running her cult-followed eponymous label out of her studio in Los Angeles since 2005. Welcome, Jesse. Thanks so much for joining us. Good to be here, man. So you just got back. Well, you're in New York right now. Why are you in New York? New York City, the muscle city. Um, I'm here for Fashion Week, buddy. It's time to sell spring, summer 2020. (laughs) You know, every six months you got to do it. And you just got back from Panama. Yep. It was a great summer. No major bodily injury, which is always like a... Possibility. Well, it's always a possibility. It often happens. And if you get through a summer without it, you're really feeling like you can pump your fist in the air. You're not living on a resort in Panama. No, we're uh, we're living in a little, we call it tree house, even though it's not in a tree. It is stilted. And uh, we're off the grid completely, collecting rainwater and solar power and composting our waste, if you know what I mean. You built the house yourself? Luke, my husband. And I designed and built the house 12 years ago, which was an effort. And if someone asked us if we could do it again, I think the resounding answer would be hell no. Yeah. Because it it, it was proper pioneering. You know, we had to carry 500 pound posts. It came in a dugout canoe. You carry it across the island by hand, put it in the ground, lace it up, bolt it down. Just one by one. And, well, you did it because you wanted to design a kind of way to live that was different than how you... Yeah, I mean, we were young and we thought maybe we would just be young bohemians surfing and living off the land. And then somehow I got pregnant and the whole idea shifted because I didn't think that I could be a young bohemian with a kid. Somehow I needed to like go back and make a name for myself so that I could support this other human. And it made more sense to do that in the States. But I didn't want to give up the the dream. So we figured out a way to sort of have both worlds. So now we spend about three months, four months if we can, a year down there. And then the rest of the time making it happen in the studio. Well, I think, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the program is that you have, more than almost anyone else I know, figured out a way to manage your time with total agents. You you are in complete control of your schedule and have a thriving business um, and making it work sort of against all of the norms that are happening, uh, especially in your industry. Right. I saw you last night and you were showing me your new catalog and and it opens with this kind of manifesto 
that I think is fantastic, which is where I want to start, which you developed, I guess, down in Panama on this last trip. Yeah, we brought the collection down, which was always very scary to me because anything you bring down comes back covered in mold and the scent of like, I guess it's musty mildew from the jungle, a little jungle rot. But because the collection was all cotton, I felt like I could handle the washing of it if it was fine silks, that would have been a little more nerve wracking, but I I was brave. I put it in the bag. We brought it down there. Um, you know, I'm the kind of person who likes to control everything. And I felt like Panama is very, there is a lack of control. It's very wild. And so I felt like I was going to have to push myself beyond my normal comfort zone where I can like systematically control every little moment, like detail where we're going to have this shot, that shot. I mean, there's, you're in the rainforest, so there's a lot of weather that comes through and you might schedule people to get on a boat and come over to the island. And then you've got a downpour for the next six hours. And how are you going to really get the work done? And everybody lives on these different islands and it's just, it, it's a very sort of um, manana culture as well. So you could organize the whole thing and then have everybody say like, no, man, sorry, there's a swell. I'll, I'll be back in two days or whatever, you know, or or I might say that. Like, <laughs> sorry, I can't do it today. It's eight feet up front. So but 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 things have evolved recently in, in how you're thinking about your business and what's important to you and how you want to present that. And so I wanted to kind of start with your most current. The manifesto. The manifesto, the most. The most current thinking for your yeah, for your well, life and business. You know, so in fashion, you work a year ahead, right? So a year ago, I was working on putting the ideas forward for this collection and the climate report came out. When I heard the news breaking about, you know, it's nothing new, but it felt pressing because I was hearing things that were like, okay, in 20 years, this is going to happen. And, and it was, it just felt to me like a very um, loud red horn being blown. And I I kept thinking, why are we all not reacting in this huge way? Why are giant companies not making grand gestures to like steer this ship in the other direction? And I was almost paralyzed for a couple of days. And I just thought like, how can I continue making things with this as the future. Like, how can I live with myself contributing to this? I'm a maker. You know, I ship fabric. It takes fuel. Um, I fly places to do things. And like, I'm part of the problem. And though my business is small and I do it on a small scale, I still contribute. And so like, how do I wrestle that knowing that I'm contributing. And so I sort of, the the idea was, well, okay, if I expect a grand gesture out of others, then I better put myself in a position to make a grand gesture. If I'm expecting others to do it, I ought to walk the walk and do it myself. So what is the gesture? How can I accomplish something and make myself feel like it is okay to produce more in a world where we are so we are drowning in excess. There's too much of everything. If we just stopped making now, there would probably be enough for us all to survive for 50 years just on what's here. Clothes, cars, you know, go to the Goodwill and get yourself a blender in a vacuum, right? So I just thought, okay, well, the the materials that we use, you know, we've always used a lot of environmentally conscientious materials, but it hasn't been 100%. And we already produce locally in California, ethically, in a socially conscientious way. There are a lot of things that are already in place, but I just needed to make it, I needed to say it out loud and put these constraints on myself and on the business where I sort of say, I will not make something unless all the pieces of the puzzle have the environment in mind. And can I make something good with those constraints. And if I can't, then it's not worth making. That's that's the sort of box I'm going to put around myself 
and the work that I do moving forward. And if I say it out loud, then I am going to have to be accountable to all the people that have heard me say it. So coming into 2020, for me, it's this, it's this moment of like clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. What's a Friday Night Lights reference? Not sure. Okay, get in there. It's good stuff. We share succession, but not for any lies. I know, but maybe you should go there next because okay. Coach Taylor, Tammy Taylor, life goals, how to live, you know, with your partner. Anyway, so 2020, clear vision, eyes wide open. This thing that we have done by being so selfish with honor to our resources, we have to stop and really take a look at what we're consuming because these resources are finite and they're going to be gone. And I can't live with myself if I'm not being thoughtful. So that's the new sort of parameter that I've built. And moving forward, I have to be accountable to that. And the goal is, you know, perhaps my doing that inspires someone else to do it. And then by them doing that, it inspires someone else. Because, you know, we just developed this whole organic cotton line for our pants, which is a very specialty fabric. But it wasn't that expensive to change over to the organic fibers. So I just think like, hey, big corporation, not going to say your name, but you know who you are. Why don't you just make the same move? It's not that much more expensive. Like you're making so much, make that change. It affects all of us in a positive way. You can build it in your marketing strategy. Right. People are going to love it. Which is where most of that comes from. But I just don't understand like why it's not coming from a place of our survival. You know, if someone said, hey, your house is on fire. You don't just sit in it and keep like throwing logs on it. That's not normal, but because we can't see it every day, like right in front of us, it's over there in the corner, like with the glaciers dropping into the sea. You can't see that. So it doesn't feel imminent, you know? Absolutely. And, and people talk about a relationship to nature and a care for the environment, but so much of your creative work is built out of the time you spend in nature. Well, it's, I mean, I am nothing without my time in nature and it's getting to be more and more. I feel like, and I don't know if it was my upbringing or just being a surfer and spending time in the sea that maybe it's just like a positive feedback loop where the more I'm in it, the more I need or the more I'm in it, the clearer I can see And I need less of the other stuff. It's almost as if, you know, I come back from a nine-week trip. I feel so high from the, like, just the energy of the quiet, the, the, the high of the surfing, the high of, like, the bonding that happens with my family when we are away and off the grid and there's no media, there's no movies, there's no podcasts, sorry. Um, There's like, it's just quiet. And you come back and you're like, wow, that's really all I need. I don't need that much to exist in this way. And I, then I come back to my home in LA and I look at the closet and I say, wow, I just don't need all those shoes or I don't need all those pants. Not that you even have that much. I, mean, I know. <laughs> one, one of the things we're talking about now, which does relate to your upbringing, childhood, which which I really want to get to next, is this idea that you have embraced an almost ideological perspective on minimalism. This is not an aesthetic choice right. in your business. This is not an aesthetic choice in the way you live and the way you communicate. This is a full on approach that, right. that that you're applying, and and all of these things in your life, like your your home and your business and the kind of uniform aesthetic that you've um, that's so well loved by women sort of across the world is an outgrowth of of an idea about how we can live and our needs and what do we really need to feel vital. Um, You know, happiness is kind of a funny way to put it. It's right. But to feel vital 
and right. and and you find vitality in these um, experiences in nature. So I, I want to talk a bit about your childhood, which I, I've always found incredibly interesting. You grew up in Illinois, across the river from Mississippi. Yep. In a house that your parents built. Yeah. Tell me a bit about that. Well, so um, I was born in the mid-70s, and it was a time where, you know, young hippies were sort of aware of, like, there were rolling blackouts, and people were conscientious of things like, you know, there was the, the um, what's that gorgeous black catalog? Whole Earth Catalog. The Whole Earth Catalog, and these things that were, you know, very prominent in the sort of hippie movement. It was like, build your own home and grow your own food. And so the whole earth catalog own, was, it was a guide to do it yourself and this sort of thing. So, and my parents didn't have a lot of money. They came from, they both came from, you know, working class. My grandfather had a filling station. My other grandfather was a security guard at the steel mill. So my parents were, you know, 18 when they met and they, they were really into like sort of, getting away from the way they grew up with like strict rules, religion. They just, they sort of went the other way and they were just really into the idea of living simply. They didn't have a lot of money. They bought this property of, you know, seven acres and everybody thought they were crazy because they were just moving to like the cornfields. And my dad just got these library books and he figured out how to, you know, put up the Foundation, he just built this house on the weekends. I was three. We would go to the property and, you know, my mom would be out running a saw and my dad would be hammering nails. And it was just, that's just the way it was. And I had this very lovely, picturesque childhood. And it was because it was a simple it was like an affordable way to do it. Like they built the house. It was passively solar powered, which is like you build the all the glass in the front of the house south facing so that the house heats up without needing a lot of fossil fuel to warm the home. And it was it was just thoughtful decisions that were about utility, you know, and conserving your money. It wasn't about like because they read it in a mag, like a dwell magazine and it was like the hip thing to do. It was just, it was inexpensive and it was how to live with your small nest egg or whatever. And, um, my mom is a potter and my father is, he was a, an engineer, but you know, his sort of trajectory was like, he was a musician and he would go to work nine to five or eight to five, but he was home every day at five fifteen, and every promotion he was ever offered, he turned down because he didn't want to give up his weekends with his family. So I learned that sort of strict time, like where Protection. you protect your time from them. And my mom didn't like, she went back to get her BFA after I was sort of on my way to college myself. And she just, they kind of gave up a lot just so that we could have time together as family. And I think that that is sort of like so deep in my foundation that that is where that um, strict protection of my time came from. One of the places. There yeah. are other places too. You've been incredibly rigorous with the guardrails you put on your life and in your business. And you kind of don't waver around that. Well, there have, lo- there have been a lot of things that contributed to that. And I think about like what they are. One of the interesting things is like when I went to university, I studied recreational therapy, which is this like totally obscure degree. But one of the things that we worked on a lot was time management, resource management, and the idea that your recreational time is very, very important to your well-being. So those sort of roots were built when I was, you know, 19 years old. Then moving to California, um, I became a model and I lost all control. I lost all ability to use my time in the way that I wanted to. I was completely at the mercy of the person 
in charge, which is, you know, your agency. It's like you have to weigh this much. You have to wear your hair this way. You can't get a suntan. You can't uh, go away this weekend. You can't, you have to be available, you know? And, and so almost five years of having your freedoms and choices stripped away from you. When I left that, I knew that whatever I did moving forward, I was going to be in charge and I was going to have control over those places and spaces in my life. That I think was the greatest. It was like the the nail in the coffin. You know, I knew that I was very unhappy during that time and I was going to move forward and be happy. And that's what it was going to, I needed my control back. What did your hippie parents think of your modeling career? Oh God, they hated it, Andrew. They just, I mean, every, you know, as a parent, you want to let your kid do the things that they, you know, they have to mess up. They have to do these things and learn, which I did. But I can remember the, the final sort of moment. Well, there were a couple things that led to the end. Me getting fired from a giant Gucci job was the big thing. What'd you do? Um, I got a really bad sunburn the day before the show. Oh, man, Jesse. I know. But it was like, it you was just like. You just don't do that. But that was like the everything that happened to me. It was always like that. I would like my first job. I fell trying to pick up this little cute wiener dog and I got this rose thorn in my lip and like busted my lip open right like hours before my first job. And my last job, I got fired from Gucci for having a terrible sunburn on my back. It was just very classic. You know, it was like all signs point to this is not right for you. And finally, I read the signs, right? I left my last job and I sort of said, like, I got I to gotta do something else. And my mom sort of said, Jess, you know, you're such a bright girl. You're so creative. It's really hard for me to watch you doing this thing where none of that is coming into play. And it, it hit, you know, and I... I recognized it at that moment. Like, it's just tearing me up. It's ruining me. I've got fucked up eating disorder. I've got no control over my life. I've, I've just, I'm, I'm stripped bare, you know? Who were you spending time with at the time? Well, you know, that's the thing. Because when I look back, it was this, it was this super fun moment in my life book in the story. You know, we were like in our early 20s and we were living in Los Angeles. I'd moved, I literally left the cornfields and moved to California and I fell into this group and it was so fun. There was this, you know, family of artists and musicians and young creatives. And I was, you know, I was modeling at the time. And I remember so clearly thinking, looking at all of this talent and thinking like, I want to be that. I remember being in town for fashion week. It was early 2000s. And I was walking down the street with Alex Greenwald from Phantom Planet, Mickey Madden from Maroon 5 and Jenny Lewis. And we were walking and talking and they were talking about these things that they were working on. And I remember thinking, like, what's my thing? Like, what am I going to make? I want to make something. You know, what? what is my contribution? And when I closed the door on that chapter, I went all in. And I remember having to really shift away from that life of, like, party. And, and when I started my collection which happened very organically. Like I wanted to learn how to sew. I took classes. I started making clothes for myself. And women in line at the coffee shop would say like, hey, where'd you get that? And I said, oh, I made it. Can you make me one? Yeah, I can. 500 bucks. And they're like, okay, can I have it Saturday? Sure. And I just, I just saw an opportunity and I just, it was like a ballsy move, but um you know, I learned from working in restaurants, like you can either have a low price item and you have to sell tons of it, or you can have a fine item made out of fine ingredients set in a beautiful space and you serve it and you can charge a high price and you have to sell less of it. Like that was the formula came from like wait- waitressing days, you know, 
so I saw the opportunity and I knew that because I didn't have any fashion design business experience, I was going to have to learn all parts of this. So the kids would be like, oh, we're going to this place tonight. And I'd say, sorry, I got to work. Well, what was amazing about that time, I met you during that time. Right. You did. This is 20 years ago. Mm. Unreal. Unreal. I was still living in New York, but visiting all the time. And I couldn't figure out what anyone did. Yeah, because there's a lot of like Scrabble playing and um, lounging by the pool. And partying all night. Partying all night. And there was just a scene of incredibly creative people who are actually all becoming quite successful in their fields, but not working very hard. Yeah, well, that was the genius of those. those, It was good luck for them. But not everybody gets to have that creative magic without like, you know, sitting down at the drawing table and really... Oh, like they were working hard. Out. You just didn't see it. Right. And so you, you, you made a decision, I'm going to be a fashion designer. I'm going to start a label. I'm not going to be a model anymore. Now, just to back up a little bit, yeah. you were struggling with a lot of different issues at the time. And there was one moment I remember when you went into your agency. At w- What happened? Uh, that was kind of like this very defining moment. I was like deathly ill. I had this terrible flu I hadn't eaten in days. I just, I felt like I was going to, you know, I was really sick, like head cold, body aches. I hadn't, I'd been in bed for days and I had to go into the agency to pick up a check. And I walked through the door feeling just so lousy. And everybody was like, oh my God, Jesse, you look incredible. Cause I'd probably lost five pounds. And I just thought, what the fuck? This is so wrong. You know, I was being praised for looking like I was dying. And this whole thing, you know, I'm not, for me, I couldn't, the whole weight loss and expectation of looking a certain way, it was different 20 years ago than it is today. And I feel like that's a really wonderful evolution. For me, it, it kind of stripped me down. And um, I I thought going into it, because I was already 20-something years old when I started that chapter, I thought I was strong enough. Like, I, this won't hurt me. This won't affect me. But then, you know, you get through your day and you're like, okay, what I've had today were like six cups of coffee, eight cigarettes, and a power bar and a cottage cheese. And... um I just, I feel like I was mentally and physically unwell and I set about repairing myself from the inside out and I turned it around and, you know, I had the help of this woman who like I met with once a week and she was like an eating disorder counselor. And I just had such a messed up self view and all that stuff. But in doing the work, I came out on the other side. I, everybody still looks in the mirror and says like, oh, that, I wish I could, you know, but I, I don't dwell. Also, I feel like that sort of additionally solidified who I am and what I'm willing to take on and what I'm not. Like, I'm not going to do things that make me feel bad anymore, whether that's spending time with somebody who makes me feel shitty or going places to events that make me feel a certain way. Like I just do not participate. I very much live in this little bubble. And I mean, I cannot, I don't read fashion blogs. I don't read fashion magazines. I don't know who any other designers are. I just... I really keep my head down. I feel that it distracts the work and it takes me off my path when I spend time doing those things. I don't go to fashion events. I don't go to dinners. I just, I'm just doing me, you know, and I don't do well with all the distraction. I do best when I just, it's me in my space doing the work, go to the ocean, do that thing, come back spend time with my family. That's how I'm able to make something of value. That doesn't work for everybody, but that's what I figured out through all this passing time that 
that's what I needed. And in many ways, I think your work is providing a kind of garment for that lifestyle. Yeah. Well, you know, Julian's birth. Julian being your... My son. Your who 10 was, year old. Who came into the world in 2009. Before he came, the work was very different. It was painstakingly laborious. I did all these hand drawings and then we turned them into screen prints and we hand printed all the fabric in the collection, which was bananas. But... um it's what we did. And when I say we, I mean, Luke Brower was also on his hands and knees with me pulling screens on our studio floor. And that was an awesome time. But when you become a parent, you have far less time. And so you've got to start stripping things down. And I just, I didn't know how to shift, but I remember I had lunch with Mariam Nasirzadeh and she was saying, you know, Cam, you don't, necessarily have to do the prints. You've got a really good understanding of color. What if you just let that go? And I was like, I, I can't let it go. That's my thing. My whole thing is these prints. But I left that lunch and I it just kind of rang around in my brain for a minute. And then I thought, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to try it. And that is when everything changed. I felt so free it was like this thing that was like holding me back. It just freed up everything. Because of like my time constraint due to parenting, I was able to like strip everything down. And then and the way that I dress changed as well, because before I had a kid, there was like almost this like fairy princess thrift store wonderland fashion. where I would like fashion, you know, I would like go to the <laughs> store, I would get some new things. You know, like you play dress up and then this new life, there was no time for dress up. I just needed something that was useful, handsome, and I could put it on every day and feel good about myself and do my work, you know, do my chores, do my running around with the kid, go to the grocery store. I needed something that fit that lifestyle. And that is where the uniform dressing sort of sprang from. But it's also... There's a psychological aspect of the clothing you have. I've spoken to a lot of women, and, and we're talking specifically about the pants you make. Sure. You're sort of very the well known pants. for the can the slacks business. The slacks. This is, you know, quite possibly the most loved pant in fashion for the last several years. It's people's staple. It's become right. like the new jeans. Right. You know, it's not be necessarily because of just the the the, the fabric or how they look. They, they do hold something. you. They hold you. You know, I think that there is something very uh, supportive about them. Like Temple Grandin's. Yes, like getting in the little cage and kind of closing yourself down at the end of the day when things feel too busy. No, you do. You You put them on and you feel held. That's the description that women sort of talk about. And um, that is the shape of the the high waisted the high waisted yeah. thing, but it's also the fabric. It's very thick and sturdy, and it it gives you a hug around the waist, just where you need it. Sometimes, you know, it's it's a rough world out there. Sometimes you just need a hug to roll with you throughout your day. And it's this thing you trust. I mean, this comes out of kind of uniform culture, right. um, and also your respect for the kind of um, Every man worker. I mean, the people you look to are well, not. that's my people. Yeah, you don't look to fashion sort of icons. No, I mean, I just, okay, so like there are a couple staples in the collection, right? And so the sailor pant came out of this beloved pair of pants that I wore all the time. And then I had a friend who is a buyer and she said, you got to make those pants. They're just so amazing. And so the original piece came from this giant pair of pants that my seamstress and I tailored and tailored and tailored over the course of like 18 months, just my personal pair, trying to get them right, like trying to get them right for my body. And finally, one day I was like, oh, Rosie, you got it. And I started wearing them like, you know, they'd been altered from this big men's pant I found at the Rose Bowl and into this lovely woman's pant. And then, you know, it became clear that I would make that. And then that started the whole next phase of pant world when I started getting into the canvas collection 
I just, so Randy Jelly was the farmer who would plow my parents' fields. You get a tax break if you keep it farmland and don't have it become like a park. So Randy Jelly would be in the field all the time and his kids lived down the street from me and he always had overalls on. And if you would go into town to the rural king to get some supplies, all the fellas had their overalls on. You know, you'd go to the feed store to pick up a check after the fields had been plowed. It was just your community, you know? There's a lot of overalls. You go to the store and there's just racks of them. And so that is like a very classic piece from my childhood. You know, there have been like jumpsuits that I remember my grandfather, Andy, who owned the filling station in this little town 15 minutes away called Aviston, home of 240 people where my mother grew up. Um, He had the filling station. He was a real dapper dude, but he would always wear these dress jumpsuits in the evening. They were like, I don't know what they were made of, but they had like a waist and it was like, it was a one piece. It was a onesie, man. It was a onesie. So that was a big place of inspiration. My other grandfather was always down in the basement tinkering, doing rascally stuff like, you know, letting me try his chewing tobacco when I was five. Um, and he had this cool, awesome system where in his workshop, he took all these baby food jars and he screwed the lids of them up into his um, cabinetry and then all the jars would screw on and he'd have all his different little bolts and screws and wing nuts. And it was just super organized and groovy. And he, his thing was like on the weekends, he always wore this short sleeve fleece sweatshirt. And so like a couple seasons ago, there was the grandpa sweater. And it's all for me just an ode to this place where people were good and they were kind. There was no excess. It was all very, it was a good life. You know, it's this idealistic time in my history where there was a middle class and people were happy. People had homes and they counted on the fact that they were going to pay off their home, you know, within 25 years. It was just a, a time of abundance in happiness, in self-worth. You know, the, the middle class now there, it's, it's, a, it's a sad time. A lot of my family have lost their jobs to automation and things like that. Cousins and aunts and uncles. And when I go home, I feel the weight of the change, the great change. And, you know, I, I really sort of pay homage to my birthplace into my home and to those good hardworking people yeah and it's a way of expressing the values of that system that exactly. you were brought up in which is so important to you yeah i mean you talk about your, your your dad building your house from a couple library books you and luke did the exact same thing. well we got the same books he made us a list and my dad he's so awesome he you know he'll come to town and he and luke will like build a door then they'll spend a day installing it. And dad is very different than Luke and I. We're kind of like, eyeball it, throw it up. It's good. My dad is super precise, precise, calculated. He he writes everything out in this gorgeous architect's script. And um, everything's just so. And my mother is just as talented like she's got an incredible sense of space and she knows so much about like she can look at a piece of wood and tell you what it is and she talks about lumber in a way that I'm like you know it's it's impressive you know that they come from a time where you created your whole world you know you don't just hire a contractor and hand over a check you were involved in every single step which is also what's interesting just to bring it back to what you present to the world and what i think our listeners know you from is is this world making and this idea of inspiration but not nostalgia i mean nothing about your brand is nostalgic it sits on its own in its own language it just comes from a kind of inspiration of values rather than aesthetics Okay. 
That's how I've always felt. Okay. Um, You know, everything in your life is built by you, touched by you, is unique to you and and is an extension of this kind of value system. I mean, you once said more is just more. Right. You know, and, and I think we're in a really interesting time with your business because you've really now articulated that in this new manifesto and you're really being very clear about the fact that we are making less but better. Right. And everything is a complete goal of honoring the environment and not adding to the system. Right. And well, and I think that my customer is a woman and a few men who understand that and they value those same principles and they feel really proud to be a part of it, to support it. You know, there aren't many brands who are building their products here in the USA anymore. And the industry is crumbling. Just to to be able to support these workshops in Los Angeles where these artisans and craftsmen have been working for 30 years. And I've watched them, Andrew, they're closing their doors. They're out of work. These craftspeople who have so much skill that are right down the road from designers who send all their drawings overseas to get built elsewhere. And you can say it's for whatever reason you want, but the reason you do it is for cheap labor. These folks are sitting in these workshops with nothing to do, and soon they won't have jobs. And I believe very strongly that my customer is proud to contribute and proud to wear these things because it means something. We are unwavering on our commitment. If the shops in the U.S. all close and I will have to be forced to make my things in Mexico, then it's not going to happen. I'm not going to do it. So for me, it's really urgent that we support the community and that we bring some of the work back. And I want to inspire my friends who have brands that build all their stuff in India, like bring half of it home. Yes, it's more expensive, but there's value built there. You're supporting your people. Yeah, well, cash has become the most valuable thing in our society in the last several years. And not I think for that's me. Not, not for everyone. And I, I think that's where we've gone wrong, um, obviously. So right. you have a different value system and you assign value to very different things. Freedom, baby. Tell me a little bit about that. I just, you know, for me, the, the currency that I trade is freedom. All I want is to have my freedom. So I work and I do enjoy my job, but it is a small thing in my day-to-day life. It's a small portion. For me, picking my kid up at 3.30 and like hanging out, cutting up some apples and trying to hear a little bit about his day, which is a challenge to get your kids to talk to you. Um, But like, Building a spaceship out of Legos and then like having some food, going for a hike, talking about where we're going to surf on the weekend, going to do those things on the weekend. I believe that freedom is wealth. I don't need that much to survive or to feel comfortable if I can pay my bills and eat clean, healthy food and fly once in a while to a place where I can check out and not have the phone dinging and the emails pouring in. That's my, for lack of better word, babe, it's my bliss. Yeah. (laughs) And how is it related to creativity? Because, you know, one of the things that I think we talk about a lot is this idea of, um, you know, fear is this creativity killer. Right. And stress, certainly. Sure. I've watched you and your business over over many years now where, you know, extraordinary opportunities come your way that that anyone would jump at. Right. And your response is like, no, I don't really need it. No, thanks. No, thanks. I'm I'm just going to stick with my couple stores and people know how to find me and I don't need a physical brick and mortar location. The idea of scale. Yeah. Is what well, drives American businesses. Well, and I you're think, just- yeah, it drives everybody. It's like, you know, the question 
everybody asks me when they see me is like, what's next? What's on the drawing board? Are you guys going to open a brick and mortar? Are you guys going to, you know, start a showroom in Europe so that you can sell there? And it's just like, eh, no, I got enough work on my plate and I don't want to grow. We can't all grow. It's just not sustainable. There isn't enough resource on this planet for us all to keep growing. When I hear global expansion, I want to puke because to me it just means like destruction. I think by saying no, I keep my sanity. And it, in addition, it makes it a little more special. Like when you finally get in, you're like, whoa, I got Jesse Cam to say yes. <laughs> well, also like you, you're interested in scaling freedom. Yeah. The more of it, the happier I am. And, and you guys should try it. It's really excellent. <laughs> like just, okay. So a couple things I do that like add to my freedom program, Luke and I call it the free state. And I got to shout out Simon de Musa in Switzerland because when we lived in Texas for that short little moment, he like came up on this hill where we were living at the time. He's like, this is the free state. And I just loved those three words. And to me, they represent like the place where I exist. It's the free state. It involves putting my phone in airplane mode at 7 p.m. I can still take a cute picture of uh, a sunset, but like you can't text me about today's meeting until tomorrow morning at 8.30. I won't get it because I'm in airplane. I'm in the free state. And it's about just, I mean, boy, there's a lot of distraction right now. Just with the social media and the, I don't know. It's all, it's a lot. It's a lot to take in. And your brain, I feel we need space. We need more space. And if you want it, you're going to have to fight for it. You're going to have to put up some boundary lines and you're going to have to like work really hard because it doesn't come easily and it doesn't come naturally. And to say, hey, I'm leaving June 5th and I'll be back on August 10th. Uh, you guys, you guys good before I leave? You need anything else before I leave? Because I'm really not able to help you once I'm gone. I mean, we still have a skeleton staff working and doing the things to move the ball down the court, but we work very hard and we organize ourselves way in advance to get everything ready so that we can go enjoy our freedom. And uh, I just think it just, you really just have to decide what's important to you. How much do I really need to feel comfortable and like maybe I would just enjoy doing something other than working my ass off and then that could be okay too. Well, it's like, you know, incredibly radical right now, as pathetic as it sounds, it's incredibly radical to be challenging this widely held assumption that working harder and faster is the path to success. I just call bullshit on all of it. I don't need a bigger car. I don't need a bigger house. You know, I drive a car that's 30 years old. Uh, she's called Big Blue. I bought her from my friend's parents. And, you know, we we had her adjusted so that she can run on veggie oil. She's got torn headliner. The door rattles. But it's like, I feel like I'm driving a farm truck and I don't care. Like, I don't need a Tesla to feel good about myself. I feel good about myself inside of my brain. So I don't need a car to make me feel good about myself. And you look back in that rearview mirror and you can imagine your best friends at five years oh, old man. sitting in it's the backseat. It's so seat. great. You know, I, Emma's parents owned this car, Margo Thomas in Austin, Texas. This gorgeous little 1985 Mercedes 300D. And two of my very closest girlfriends rode carpool in that backseat their whole childhood. And now my kid and his buddies ride in the backseat. And it's it's a nice, there's something beautiful in the history there. And this brings me to this funny thing about technology, which is like all these advances in technology. And I had this hilarious moment with a cousin recently who got his Tesla and he was complaining about the fact that he has to take his key fob out of his pocket 
to get the Tesla door to open. And I, I pulled out my keychain. It's like a fucking jailer's keychain. It's got my car requires three keys <laughs> and they're giant. There's one for the ignition, one for the door and one for the trunk. Then our other Mercedes requires two keys. It's just a lot of keys. But there is something really gratifying about doing things that are a little harder. Like, I don't need a light switch that turns itself on. It's really not that hard for me to just put my finger there and lift. That's okay for me. You know, I recently got dimmers put on a couple light switches in the house and he's like, do you want to do the smart system? I'm like, hell no. I don't want anything else on this phone device thing. I don't want to have to drive my life from this. I like having to do things. I would be a fat slob if I didn't have to do anything. You know, like just give me a little task, make things Maybe maybe not so easy. Why? What's this obsession with ease? I don't think it's more comfortable. Well, we're living in the time of supply chain and convenience. Like, that's what we're in right now. You know, we want to order it from a screen so we don't have to go to a store, so we don't have to see people. Right. So we're becoming completely alienated from life. Now, the Valley sold it to us as you're going to get to have stronger human connections in your real life. And you're going to be able to live life more because all of these mundane tasks are Except for getting out of the way. I'm constantly updating the app and I forgot my password. Well, of course, we all know that it's, a, it's an absolute you know, disaster what's farce. occurred in the last 10 years. But outside of social media and sort of the big companies in the Valley, what we're realizing is that that is life. The mundane tasks are what makes up life. Well, and it's what, it's what gives us comfort at the end of the day like oh i solved these five problems i i ticked these tasks off my list and i don't know about you but it seems like there are a lot of depressed people out there i've never seen more billboards uh talking about suicide in my life my goodness are we really happier are we no cuz i think not cuz when i go to a place where things haven't advanced quite so rapidly, people still have happiness in a real basic way. Well, it's, it's slow. You know, it, it's funny because luxury is becoming what was just life 30 years ago. You know, luxury is like, oh man, I'm going to go to the desert and check out for five days and just live quietly. Like that's just, that was just life before all of this asinine advance, right? And it's like the story of the fisherman. He's there, he's on the island, he works four hours a day. He catches the fish for his family and this American comes I don't know. This is just my version of the story. This American comes and it's like, oh, man, you you know what you should do? You should get four boats and hire some guys and then they could all go fish and like think of how much fish you would have. And he's like, yeah, but then I'd have to work all the time. It's just it's so backwards the way that we are all like a rat on a wheel. I just I I can't buy it. I, I and you haven't it. bought it. And what's been amazing to watch is that the sort of driver of your success and vitality has everything to do with you working against. I that believe one hundred percent that my business is where it is because of these choices and restrictions I've put on myself. Because people are paying attention to it, they think it's. They're like, wait, what? You do what? And they Somehow get excited about it. It's inspirational and it's aspirational and it's sensational and more people should do it. <laughs> I mean, just like what if we all worked 50% less? We'd use 50% less resources. We'd have 50% more time on our hands. Maybe we'd be 50% happier. I mean, it's just, I, I don't, I can't, I don't even, you ask me what my friends are doing. I don't know. I don't know what anybody's doing. Nobody has a conversation anymore. Everybody's too busy. Busy doing what? I don't know. Just like dealing, coping with the rapid pace of our lives at this point. It's too much. Everything is 
too excessive. The consumption is out of control. I don't need to constantly be pumping out ads so you can buy my stuff. I don't pump out any ads. If you want something, you'll come get it. I know you will. I don't have to badger you. And if you don't buy it today, like, I'll be okay. It's just, I don't know. We got to pump the brakes here. Well, luxury is this word that's in this state of change. Right. Well, it's changed a lot. Yeah. How do you really think of luxury right now for yourself? Well, for me, like... <sighs> I mean, when you really want to treat yourself, when you get out of the kind of You know, when I really want to treat myself, it's like <sighs> I buy myself something that was made in a really conscientious way or buy myself a bit of food that was like really carefully prepared in a slow manner from really good ingredients. And again, that's just how things were done 40 years ago. Slowly, thoughtfully, carefully. That's luxury. Luxury is what we gave up to have what we have now, which is, what's the word? It's like the pedestrian things that we have every day. We thought that the iPhone was luxury, but actually just like that's taken everything beautiful away from us. And and I believe, you know, you read these stories about how the people in the Valley don't let their kids have the the iPhone or the iPad. It's, it's true, man. And it's like the people I really think are baller are the guy who just has the flip phone. And again, that's who we were 20 years ago. We all were that. We all were that person. And so I think you got to really like just sort of ask yourself, like, if if all this is making you happy and if it's not, then you can do something about that, too. Now that we're on the topic of defining things, how do you define fashion? Fashion. I don't know. Uh, I find the word fashion to be really sort of like it's like it hits a little gag reflex on me and I've never really been comfortable being put in this um, box with that word. I feel like when I think of the word fashion, I think of a circus, like this nuts. Like when I look, you know, I really don't do it, but like at the beginning of the week, I always pop on Vogue.com and I'll just peek at a couple things and I'm like, wow, that is, that is just ridiculous. Like, what is that? Who wears that? It's like a circus. And so I don't really feel like what I do has anything to do with that. What I do is make a couple useful items that people put on their bodies and wear throughout the day. And that's what I do. I don't feel that the word fashion applies to me, even though I personally love to dress in a way that makes me look and feel a certain way. Like I love putting together the aesthetics of an outfit. I love that. Or I love like the moments where because I don't have a brick and mortar and I don't have like a a place for people to come try things on where I get to. But if for some reason somebody, you know, is in town and they're like, hey, can I come to the studio? And I actually get to like help them. It is just such a joy for me to get the button just right and and straighten it and tuck it and oh you know what you need you need a tie and just to put that all together it's really satisfying i imagine it's like a a baker who's like putting the hash marks in the bread or whatever just getting it just so that's really satisfying for me and i but that's not really what i get to do right because i make this thing and i send it in the world and then people do with it whatever they want and that's not necessarily always my way but you imagine you have this sort of programmatic imagination of what people are going to do with your clothing you have a sense of how people are going to use it and it's almost like you're building their baseline like yeah. it starts here and this is how it functions right these are the basic building blocks and then you take it and do whatever you want with it from there. I would feel more comfortable if you got your button down at the vintage shop than at the fast fashion store, but that's fine. You can tag me in there with your... Yeah, but the idea is that you are, you know, they're, they're the on the cover of the Whole Earth Catalog, which we mentioned before, is, is tools for living. You know, you're kind of making garments for living. 
yeah, hopefully you can live in them for a really long time. That's the goal, you know? I think people will. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having this me on, This was a great Andrew. conversation. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of the Time Sensitive Podcast on our website, timesensitive.fm, or on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. Thank you.